Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Sam. Hello, Danny. Hello. Good to see you. Love to see you as well. I saw a film recently, which you've already seen, The Big Sick, which recently got nominated for a Best Original Screenplay Oscar, and it's on Amazon Prime. And I was like, I'm going to see what everyone's raving about and what you said was shit. Yeah. And uh, you'll be delighted to know that I think you was bang on the money. Thank you, Danny. It's fucking garbage. I do not understand the acclaim for this film. I found it very boring. I knew knew you'd be with me. I knew you'd be on my side. I'm not sure. Us against the world, man. It's just like... Kumal uh, Najani is just not what I would call a charismatic screen presence. No, he, he a, a really very isn't. boring man with very boring stand-up and really bad stand-up. Really, I don't know. Was that the point? I don't know. Well, because he does like a he does like a show about his Pakistani upbringing, right? Which is supposed to be like supposed to be bad. Yeah, and then uh, but like at the end, it's like his better version of that show, but it's like equally, equally yeah. But dull. I don't really know like why. I mean, shouldn't wouldn't the film have also worked had it that show been good? Why does it have to be bad? Well, the thing that that joke didn't work at all because it's like in the logic of the uh, scene, like his character would make fun of that kind of show. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So like, yeah, it's very very odd. It's like kind of written from two different angles. I didn't know what was going on. Yeah, and it was just boring. It was so self indulgent. The only thing that kind of saved it was Zoe Kazan. Yeah, and like she's so good, but like. If, if like, the actual Emily Gordon played that character, it would be just the worst thing in the world. It'd be like, we're this, the smuggest fucking couple in the world, and we made a film all about us. Yeah, some couples, like, shoot, uh, like, do an engagement photo shoot or whatever. Yeah, we like, made, like, ugh. an entire movie. It's just like, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> shut up. I hope they get divorced. <laughs> that would be great, and I want to see that movie. Yeah, and then she goes away and writes a movie with, like, whoever her... Yeah you know, other, her next boyfriend is. Or yeah, exactly. Like that. Yeah, and then they write a movie together, shitting on him. Also, I know it was written by him, but, I mean, the conclu- I think you said this in your review, but the conclusion of that movie was that, like, the Pakistani family are, like, these backwards bigots, and uh, God yeah, bless America. Yeah, seems very down on, <laughs> like, on, pa- on the culture of Pakistan. Because there's a bit where he says, like, why did you, why did we come to America if you don't have, like, an American life? If you want me just to, like, marry a Pakistani girl? And they, like, never answer that question. He just says it. I'm like, okay, now the movie's gonna sort of articulate the parents' point of view, and it's like, no, they're just these two-dimensional... Yeah. Well, the, the yeah. only other, the only bit of, like, nuance introduced is the is when uh, they talk about how they, you know, gave up everything to bring him to America and stuff like that. And they're like, you know, yeah. we, they sacrificed everything, and she's like, I haven't seen my own mother in, like, you know, 15 years or whatever. And it's like, you know what? That is a bigger sacrifice than anything your son has had to make. And I'm now on your side. Yeah. And I hope you do kick him out of the family yeah. and, and never speak to him again. I was furious that the closing credit sequence implied that they had reconciled. No reconciliation. No <laughs> I want to be ostracized by his entire family. Yeah, he's a bad guy, the film. Yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, you were right. The Academy you. is wrong. More on this later. <laughs> and the way that you were right and the Academy is wrong. Excellent. Uh, all right, so, Danny, a lot of people will be listening to this for the first time. We are making waves in the podcast world, as far as I understand, leaping up the iTunes charts. I think we've just overtaken uh, um, the guilty feminist. The guilty feminist. <laughs> I think we're doing better than that one now. So, uh, so for some of our <laughs> sort of random choice. <laughs> so for some of our new listeners, uh, what 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 sort of podcast is this? Glad you asked. I've got the perfect little synopsis of what it is right here. So, Film Chat is a podcast set in the near future, where in the aftermath of a global war. Guns have been outlawed, but people still fight using blades and fists. I don't know why I pronounced it like that. Fists. 
Sam Foster, the woodcutter, is the most powerful man east of the Atlantic, a shadowy crime boss who rules with an iron fist, and nine assassins called the Killers. His right-hand man is Danny Moran, a cold-hearted, smooth-talking murderer with a red hat and a deadly blade. Along with his killers is Sam's love, Katie Rogers, a femme fatale with a secret past. The citizens live in fear of Sam's gang and wait for a hero who can overthrow them. One night, a mysterious drifter enters the horseless horseman saloon and talks to the bartender. He wants two things, a shot of whiskey and a game of cards. But the only place in town, the Russian roulette, is controlled by Sam, who only accepts very rich players. Later, another stranger enters, uh-huh. a samurai called Yoshi. Yoshi wants to fulfill his dying father's wish by recovering a medallion that was stolen from their village. Armed with cross destinies and incredible fighting skills, and guided by the bartender's wisdom, the two eventually join forces to bring down the corrupt reign of Sam. Is what I would be saying. This was a adaptation of the film Bunraku. However, it's just a podcast where we talk about and review films. I'm Danny Moran, and joining me is a man who is feared by many, but loved by few. <laughs> Sam Foster. <laughs> you get the feeling like after almost 150 episodes, yeah. <laughs> what hitting our stride <laughs> hitting our stride that's what i was gonna say yeah uh tom hanks legend legend meryl mate. street icon steven spielberg the jesus of movies that's right it's time for us to reach out our trembling hands to touch the hem of the post the drama which at first appears to be about the publishing of the pentagon papers but on a deeper level main fact be about a certain small-handed fake tanned president has mr trump finally met his match you'll find out in our review which will mainly consist of us hooting and hollering and applauding wildly danny will also be giving his take on downsizing in which uh, matt damon makes himself extremely small but whose running time is extremely long is this some kind of uh wry ironic joke from director alexander payne danny will speculate later plus we pour over the oscar nominations which suggest that awards season might not be a total washout and we look forward to charlie kaufman's latest conceptually ambitious and presumably utterly depressing project and we discuss documentaries good documentaries bad documentaries and all the kinds of documentaries in between all that should leave just enough time for me to announce my latest film hooray for brutus a historical epic about the brave Roman who brought down a tyrant to defend democracy. We've already got Tom Hanks on board, of course, to play Brutus. Although in some scenes, Brutus will be played by Kenneth Branagh, and in a number of other key scenes, Brutus will be played by Oprah. To ensure audiences do not miss the contemporary relevance of this urgent call to arms, the character of Julius Caesar will be played by Alec Baldwin in a stupid wig, puckering his lips all the time and constantly saying things like, That Pompey is a huge loser. In such troubling times as these, it would be a complete abdication of my responsibilities as a citizen and an artist if I did not make this film. Please begin the West Wing bugle underscoring now. And I have no doubt that if we work together, Hollywood can make enough stirring dramas about honest elites doing the right thing that before long we can restore sanity and decency to our great republic. Thank you. Thank you. God save America. Thank you. Thank you. Well said, well said, had to be said. You just um, destroyed all the bad people with your words. Thank you very much. As soon as this goes viral, Trump will be quitting. Impeaching himself. He'll be impeaching himself and demanding that Hillary Clinton replace him. Georgia Mills, our good friend Georgia, has got in touch with us to ask a very straightforward question, but one that's, you know, big. Big. Simple and big. Film chat, what are the best documentaries? Whoa. Whoa. That's a big question. Big question. Don't, we're not doing a 15-hour episode, Georgia, so <laughs> hardly have time to discuss such an enormous question. Uh, actually, I, I feel like I'm not really an authority on the, on the subject of documentaries. Um, I am. My favorite documentary is, of course, the making of Captain America: Civil War <laughs> on, on the special edition of the of the DVD. Um, I think that's the greatest documentary of all time. But it's also the only one that I've seen. That and um, Fahrenheit 9/11, uh, which brought down uh, George Bush. Um, so, Danny, as a as a more erudite, uh, knowledgeable, oh, I don't know about that. Um, what are your What are your picks here? My top. I've jotted down some top picks. 
recently, the work. I can't hype it. Uh, oh, I'm seeing that next week. Well, you know, hopefully you'll join in with my uh, actually. My I was telling, love of that film. So you told me right that you cried a lot five times a five a five time uh, yeah cry constantly in the movie. And then I was speaking to uh, Sonia, my housemate, yeah, about seeing this, and she was like, "Oh, my friends saw that. Like two of my friends saw it. They both cried all the time." I'm a bit, you know, I'm slightly concerned. You know, no, I'm no, a sensitive. No, no. I'm but- a sensitive guy. I, you know, I've got delicate sensibilities. And uh, I don't want to be just like... But this is the message of the film, right? It's okay to cry. So the film will be both Masculinity making me cry is a and, and right? making me feel okay about doing it. Yeah, exactly. It. It's very cathartic, the yeah. whole thing. You I'll go start crying, same. I'll be like, what am I doing? And then I'll listen a bit to the movie, I'll be like, this is actually fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly that. Okay. Um, uh, other recent ones which I thought were amazing were uh, Act of Killing and Look of Silence. Which oh, I know yeah. you saw Look of Silence. Look of Silence is awesome. Um, but they are both amazing. They were both in our top tens of the years they were released, I believe. And uh, other good documentaries? Well, I listed like documentarians I really like. So I think Errol Morris is like, he's always worth watching. He did, um, well, he recently did this series, One Word, on Netflix. And he did Tabloid and uh, Standing Operate Procedure. But his, probably his best film is this one called The Thin Blue Line, which is from the late 80s. And it's all about him investigating this guy who's been convicted for a murder and his investigation of it changes the outcome of the case and it's a bit like a prototype version of making of a murder or serial all those kind of true crime stuff i thought this is like the first and the best version of that and i think it's on netflix as well maybe us netflix so well worth a watch and also um fred wiseman is also really worth getting into he's uh been making movies since the 60s and his basic thing is he just makes films about institutions. And his first film is called Titty Cut Follies. And it's all about um, a mental asylum in the 60s. And it's very, it's it's amazing, but it's kind of a hard watch because they've had all these kind of barbaric practices. And I believe it was shown to the cast and crew of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. as like research. And you know, in that movie, there's like the whole thing about shock treatment and stuff. And there's yeah, a lot yeah. of that. Um but yeah, his early stuff is really good, but he's somebody who I feel the digital cameras have not been good for Wiseman because he's like, his movies are now like four hours long. He's like, I can shoot as much as I want forever. And it's like, oh, it was better when you were just doing 16 millimeter film. And you, yeah, yeah. Take, take the money and technology out of this man. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And also another very obvious pick is Grey Gardens by the Maisel Brothers. Oh, I really want to see that. Which is amazing. I really want to see that. I'm basically kind of like... All these pigs are probably like in the science sound top 10. These are all like big. Yeah. Which I would. Uh, big. Big. Yeah, uh, obviously, the best documentary ever made is the third series of Twin Peaks. Yes. But Grey Garden is also really good, which is about these two super rich, well, these uh, impoverished socialites living in this dilapidated mansion uh, in like like complete squalor. And uh, they're like related to the Kennedys somehow. And it's just them. There's like raccoons running in all these huge houses. And it's just, uh, you have to watch it. It's like, it's insane. Like these like two old ladies just kind of living their lives while- It's like mother and and daughter, right? Yeah. But like nature is sort of invading this huge sprawling property, like at every turn. And uh, yeah, it's one of those documentaries where like, you know, this is such a cliche, but like, you know, if it wasn't documentary, you wouldn't believe it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, And that's awesome. And also some of Werner Herzog's stuff is really worth checking out. Grizzly Man being the most famous one. But he also did a really good one called Lessons in Darkness, which is like the most Herzog-y one because- it's just shots of Kuwait after the Gulf War and like this sort of like horrible landscape which has been like decimated by war and him like intoning in his weird barbarian accent all these kind of poetic things while Wagner is playing. And it sounds like a parody of a Werner Hussig movie, but it's really, really good. So watch all of those and cool. come back to me uh, and in a week's your, time your and, and tell me which one was the best. Yes. That's your homework, Georgia. Superhero films announced Casting rumours leaking out M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped Matt Damon's in a viral vid Michael Bay's made a mint That's the news that's been to print So, nominations Award season uh, continues apace Giving us plenty to chat about And the Oscar nominations have been released We are a little apprehensive about these Because... The nominations for the BAFTAs and the results of the Golden Globes were not uh, particularly encouraging. However, the Oscars look a little bit better. So here are the nominees for Best Picture, which I will read to you now. Call Me By Your Name, 
uh, I'll just say yay or boo, shall yeah. I? Yeah. Call me by your name, yay. Yay. Darkest hour, boo. boo. Dunkirk, eh. <laughs> uh, get out, yay. <laughs> Ladybird, presumably yay. Phantom Thread, probably a, a yay. Haven't seen it. The Post, enormous boo. boo. Uh, the Shape of Water, <laughs> and three, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. <laughs> boo, boo, boo. <laughs> um, so that's our take on that. Uh, then, then we can conclude this section and move on. No, yeah, it was. Uh, I think people were like, you know, heartened by the results. It's a bit like the Golden Globes is a kind of soft opening, and people sort of like all the people voting saw the backlash and like what people were annoyed about, and they're like, let me just change a few things here. <laughs> and so it was really great that John Peel and Greta Gerwig yes. both got directing nominations. Yeah, um, bit of a shame Luca Guadagnino didn't get one, but I guess you can't. You're always going to be disappointed by something in the Oscars, and it's awesome that Daniel Kaluuya got a best uh, has nod. got a best actor nod. Prompting some very endearing uh, tweets from Jordan Peele. Yeah, about it. He's very proud of him. Um, yeah, and Defoe's got a best supporting nod for the Florida Project, which is very nice. That's I'm, good, but there's a bit of a bit of a shutout of the Florida Project. It's a shame the Florida Project doesn't have more because yeah, it was really good. I mean, honestly, I think Defoe's his performance is extremely endearing, but I don't think it's like an epic acting performance. But I'm just glad to see that it's you know the Florida Project is being recognised in some way. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I loved it, but I don't. I didn't think it was like a huge stretch for him or anything. But he does deal with the kids well, you know. <laughs> It's like the Green Goblin, but he seems so nice. Give this man an Oscar. Give this man an Oscar, for God's sake. And yeah. no uh, best uh, supporting actor for Michael Stuhlberg, who is amazing and calling by your name and has like the standout scene, arguably. Yeah, yeah, that is and, a shame. Uh, but Timothy Chalamet has got a best actor nod, which is very cool, I think, as well. Chalamet. The, Sha- love, the love, Chalamet. Love himself. the Chalamet. Yeah, which is very nice to see. Uh, Meryl Streep has a nom for Best Actress because you're just obliged to give her one. I'm acting in this movie. Uh, thank you for your frankness, old guy with glasses. <laughs> That's a line from the film, I believe. I believe it is, yeah. Um, and we've already mentioned that uh, the Best Original Screenplay for The Big Sick it seems like a bit of a stretch. Bullshit. If Get Out doesn't win this category, it's going to be a fucking outrage. I've... I- I mean, well, we haven't seen Lady Bird, so that might have an incredible screenplay. But the other one's The Shape of Water, which does not have an incredible screenplay. And The Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, which has also got quite a bad screenplay. So, yeah. Come on. Come on. Hoping for, hoping for Get Out There. There was, like, as much as uh, I'm delighted that Dan Kaluuya has got a Best Acting um, nomination, it does... There was a lot of talk on Twitter about this, about just the lack of opportunities for black British actors. And he is, like, a long line of... You know, Chiwila Jofa or David Oyelowo or Idris Elba, who have only got pro- like good roles by moving to the States and learning how to do a really convincing American accent. Yeah. And just yeah. like the infrastructure of British film and TV does not allow for like breakout stars. Perhaps maybe the exceptions like John Boyega. Yeah. But Attack the Block is quite a. But John Boyega is also doing an American accent these days. Yeah, but I guess you could say like Attack the Block was like a sort of. Was his like breakout. But like how many genre films with. Uh, working class black leads exist. Maybe Attack the Block is the only one. I think that's I think that's probably true. And it probably has something to do with what we've discussed before about how like so many British movies heritage. This heritage kind of movies which yeah. is just about white people and that um movies like Attack the Block or like um like uh, I guess Edgar Wright movies and things like that that are more sort of genre films don't feel that you know that then get seen by Hollywood people and then they start casting people in those movies. You know, like uh, Simon Pegg's career is basically made by Edgar Wright, for example. Yeah, yeah. And it's a bit of a similar thing where like all these Hollywood directors see these like this British genre film and they're like, "Whoa, this is like a Hollywood film, but it was made by a little British guy." <laughs> um, and then they invite them over to you know work on their screenplays and hang out with them and then cast their actors in movies. But but it, yeah, it's much less true of these like prestige um, period dramas and stuff like that, which just like recycle the same like old you know uh, like class of um, English people used to seeing in every other film. Yeah, it's like Daniel Kaluuya can't have the same career as Eddie Redmayne. Yeah, yeah, you know? exactly. Even exactly. though he has, you know, been steadily working in TV and theatre for like a decade. It's not like some overnight success. But like he's just made this movie, it's like, oh, that guy. And it's like, if he was a cheekboned posho, you think he would have been cast in any number of British yeah. films by now. I mean, the, the other thing with uh, that helped Daniel Kaluuya get his success was Black Mirror. Yeah. Which I think also kind of falls into a similar category as something like Attack the Block in that it's this British production, which is very genre based, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it, has... it doesn't fall into that mold of like prestige production, but that got this like, you know, American, like breakout American audience, 
the big story, in my opinion, from the Oscar nominations is the nomination for Best Animated Feature for The Boss Baby. I have not seen The Boss Baby, but now I must. It stars Jimmy Kimmel, the host of the Oscars. Does The Boss Baby star Jimmy Kimmel, the yeah. host of the Oscars? Is he one of the parents? He's the dad, I believe. He's the dad, the boss man. <laughs> and it's like Alec Baldwin. He's been sticking to Trump all year, you know. They have to give him an Oscar. They've got to give him an Oscar. I've seen, uh, I remember seeing an advert for Baldwin's Trump book. And I don't know why I didn't buy that for my whole family for Christmas, because that's obviously the most important. <laughs> he was like playing with the toys, right? Because well, he's an idiot. Because like, he's an idiot. He's a little boss Trump's baby. A little boss baby. <laughs> he's, he's a little bit. He's America's boss baby. Wait a second. Wait a second. Is this why? Is this why it's been animated? <laughs> the boss baby is about Trump. Oh my god! Incredible satire. Yeah, we'll have to check that one out. But yeah, much more encouraging. And also, dear listeners, I've got a twenty quid bet on Get Out winning Best Picture at the Oscars. Yeah, so 12, you, twelve to one, and when to become a wealthy, wealthy man. Yeah. So I'm thinking because it's a good sign that Jordan Peele's got director because usually whoever wins the best picture got a best director nod. There's a groundswell of support. I'm feeling the ultimate end of the Get Out story with me profiting from Jordan Peele's success, I feel. Yeah, that will be perfect. <laughs> very, very thematically on point. Yeah. That was the message of the story, right? I believe so. I yeah. believe so. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that'd be great. Good luck to you. I hope, I hope you become a wealthy And I'll man. take you all bowling. It'll be great. I don't want you to... Once you're rich after your gambling, you know, your gambling career really takes off. I don't, I don't, <laughs> My gambling career. I don't want you to replace me with, like, someone in your new social circle of... No, uh, no. I'll just replace the mics and, you know, get a different sound booth. Yeah. Just spruce up the whole podcast operation. Make them, my... like, gold with our initials on them, like yeah. Van Morrison's microphone. Yeah, exactly. Get a couple of Van Morrison microphones. Um, can we very briefly look at the best foreign language ones? Certainly. There's no uh, mention of Raw, which is rather a shame. So the the, uh, the nominations are A Fantastic Woman. Fantastic Woman. On Body and Soul, The Insult, Loveless and The Square. I've only seen one of these movies, which was Loveless. Which is it, excellent. Which is excellent. The Square, I've heard quite mixed things about. Some people think that it's just some like sneering smug thing about... That's the uh, Force Majeure guy, it's right? It's the Force Majeure guy, Ruben yeah. But you, you had mixed views about Force Majeure, right? It is a very critic movie. It's like sort of middle-class people being twats or something. I yeah, but I think like, I think from what I've heard about The Square, it sounds like a sort of a similar thing, and that it's like that middle-class um, like middle class critiquing itself in a slightly annoying way. But in this case, it's taking aim at like, the pretentious world of modern art, but it just feels like a bit of a cheap shot. That's what I've heard. I cannot comment any further on that. Um, and the others, uh, yeah. Do you know anything about these movies? Well, I've seen a fantastic. I've seen a fantastic woman. Fantastic woman, which was very good. I really enjoyed it. Okay, cool. And well, it has a standout performance from uh, I forget the lead's name, uh, Daniel something. Uh, this transgender actor. Oh, cool. But she's brilliant. At it. And, um, and so it'd be cool. Yeah, I know. All for the wokeness of the Oscars. You know, it'd be cool to see. Her. I hope she wears a killer dress. Trans Oscar winner. That'd be great. And have you seen Body and Soul or The Insult? I have not. I've not. Well, good luck to them. I hope she wears a killer dress. What the fuck am I talking about? <laughs> I hope that trans woman wears a great dress at the Oscars and shows up all the... What? All the cis, all the cis the... women. Where was I going with that? I don't know. Why didn't you stop me? Oh, I don't know. I just I wasn't... I just like that one, you know, let that one drift off. <laughs> yeah, I've been drinking. All right. It's getting very dark in this room, uh, listeners, so I'm going to now take a little moment to turn the lights on. So we're not recording in total darkness. And please enjoy this jingle while I do that. My favorite film stars Bridget Bardot. She's the queen and she wants to be in radio. So she starts a podcast with her friends. And the terrorists try to stop her, but she beats them in the end. Charlie Kaufman is one of uh, the most idiosyncratic writers around. And all his films are interesting, even if you don't like them. I agree. Uh, that's my pithy review of Charlie Kaufman. That's a minded way to describe and it. And it's... Few uh, disagree with. Anomalisa was a couple of years ago and uh, has been, you know, wondering what Kaufman's going to be doing next. And he has this week been announced as being attached to uh, write and direct a Netflix adaptation of Ian Reid's debut novel, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Thinking of Ending Things. I'm thinking of Ending Things. Sounds quite depressing and suicidal, which would fit with Charlie Kaufman's recent oeuvre. Apparently the story follows the character Jake as he goes on a road trip to meet his parents on their secluded farm with his girlfriend who is thinking of ending things. <laughs> when Jake uh, makes an unexpected detour leaving her stranded, a twisted mix of palpable tension, psychological frailty and sheer terror ensues, uh, which sounds like right up his alley. It does sound. It sounds like Kaufman-esque material. Perfect for him. Um, but yeah, this is like another sort of 
successful coup for Netflix. Like they're producing the new Scorsese movie and apparently got the new Paul Greengrass film. I heard and... right, that Netflix have got 80 films on their slate than, on their production slate, which is more than like major studios have. So they're really going like seriously all out Netflix at the moment. Well, I, I remember like when he was doing the press for Anomalisa, he was talking about he had like real trouble getting projects off the ground and Anomalisa was partly uh, Kickstarter funded. Right, yeah. Um, but it feels like Amazon and Netflix are very auteur friendly because they're just desperate for content and because of their platform release, they don't have to have like big opening weekends. In the same way, like a movie like Bright would bomb at the box office, but apparently it was a huge hit for Netflix. They just need like buzz, right? They just and need buzz. Yeah. So, so it's, in a way, it's surprising it's taken them as long to snap uh, Kaufman up. Yeah, exactly. And this, this is a bit like, um, it kind of reminds me a bit when we were talking about the man who killed Don Quixote was being made by Amazon Studios. Like, it kind of feels like these corporate titans, are, you know, will get the film made in a way that if it's just relying on a bunch of European investors that could drop at any minute, they don't. So, I mean, it is sort of killing well, the industry, but it's I good mean, for it. I don't know. But, like, they, but they have like the cash to burn because that's part of their model. Both Amazon and Netflix are um, uh, companies whose like business model involves investing enormous amounts of money in things that are not immediately profitable, since that's a very like Silicon Valley type attitude. Yeah. So they are, you know, they they are beneficial for. Uh, people who are not able to get their funding via like traditional studio means where the bottom line is so important because for these guys it isn't and like amazon has got an insane amount of cash and it doesn't matter if they make things that don't make any money you know yeah, yeah. They, they didn't give a shit i mean i think bezos just became like the richest person in history or something like that so you know he can afford to fund some like stuff um and yeah similarly netflix is just uh, the beneficiary of an enormous amount of like venture capital funding and they're you know they're still just pressing ahead trying to become you know defeats television and all movie studios and become like the sole source of everything so, <laughs> but i think that's quite quite a long-term project for for both companies so in the meantime i guess we can enjoy these like non-profitable things that wouldn't be made otherwise yeah absolutely and it feels like charlie Kaufman movies operate in that mid-range budget which you that kind of film type which doesn't exist anymore like, yeah. They're all kind of like $40 million films, which like attract good actors because they're interesting scripts, but perhaps just could not compete with, you know, a big studio release. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a slight uh, Kaufman skeptic, I think, or at least maybe of his like more recent stuff. Um, as um, I thought Anomalisa is just like too depressing. <laughs> just, just too much. Yeah, it's very, I think it's just very nihilistic and like, and extremely down on like human interactions and it, I would I would disagree, but okay. Well, I think that you know that's what it's about. It's about the choice. Do you want to be the one who sings in the sun, or whatever it is? You got to make a choice to be happy. Yeah, but um, but like her character. Yeah, well, I don't know. Which, let's, <laughs> let's not go back into like going over anomalies and stuff. But I mean, you know, obviously not everyone would agree with me on this. Maybe we can discuss like how absolutely more later date. But like. In my view, like both of his last two movies, Senteki, New York, and um, Anomalisa, are films that really put their finger on, uh, you know, like uh, modern malaise or feeling depressed and alienated from the world around you, which is like what a lot of Kaufman's output is about, but that their conclusions offer basically no respite from that. And, like, <laughs> and I don't know how much like I want to see movies that are going to like, you know, they're going to do that. It's like, it's this incredibly uh, genius puzzle box thing about how shit life is. And you go away and you think, about it, yes, yes, I, well, my life does suck. Indeed, like death is, is inescapable. Yeah, the original ending of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind was them like constantly deleting each other. And then Michelle Gondry is like, nah. And yeah, like, that's too you, much. That's too much. And like, they'll just get back together. <laughs> yeah. And I think well, maybe that was a good call, perhaps. Like, <laughs> I mean, this is, the, I think this is the thing, right? Because like... As somebody, I mean, Kaufman is obviously somebody who's very concerned with telling stories that feel true and everything like that. And you don't want to make a film that has like a cop out ending. And then like the ending of adaptation is is a sort of knowing cop out where like that's the whole point or something like that. But um, the if you're if you feel like the only way to you know like deliver truth is just with the most like bleakest like most awful suicide inducing <laughs> ending ever, then it's just like. Yeah, you may have made a film that's very true to your own state of mind, but I don't know if it's necessarily a great story. You know, it's like that I've said, The Simpsons, like, truth is beauty, beauty is the truth, but the truth can be alarming and depressing. <laughs> you sure suck the fun out of that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
So I don't know. I mean, I'm not immediately like can't wait to see his new suicide film. To be honest, but 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 I but. will watch it with interest. <laughs> the progress of this with interest. And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw. Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it astonishingly poor? How did Danny form a judgment? We're about to hear his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off. Downsizing. This has arrived on UK shores with a pretty mixed reception, starring that constant man putting his foot in his mouth, man, Matt Damon. Remember him? He was cool once, wasn't he? Yeah. And now he's just like, shut up, Matt. <laughs> shut the fuck up. So Downsizing <laughs> is directed by Alexander Payne and written by him and his longtime writing partner, Jim Taylor. And here's the official synopsis. When scientists discover how to shrink humans to five inches tall as a solution to overpopulation, Paul played by Matt Damon, and his wife Audrey, played by Kristen Wiig, decide to abandon their stressed lives in order to get small and move to a new downsized community, a choice that triggers life-changing adventures. And here is a clip where Paul meets a Vietnamese dissident called Nok Lan Tran, I hope I got that name right, uh, played by Hong Chao, who was shrunk against her will and now works as a cleaner for a Romanian black marketeer played by Christoph Waltz. Wait a minute. I, I know you... You're the, oh my God, you're that uh, woman from a couple years ago, the dissident from uh, Thailand or something? What's your name? Yang Ngoc Lang, Vietnam. Yang Ngoc Lang from Vietnam. Yes, that's right, that's right. And I remember that you, you lost your leg below the knee. That's, that, that's you. Wow. Dushan, uh, hey, do you know who this is here? Of course, a famous Noak Lantran. Dramatic escape from Vietnamese prison, almost died, so now she can clean my house. America, big land of opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a very strange and ambitious film that takes a long time to say very little, I think. And uh, it's kind of apt that we're talking about Charlie Kaufman because it is a bit like a sort of... the. The concept is kind of similar to one of his high concept things, but without the kind of pursuing the idea to its logical conclusion, which you were just discussing. And it has a premise which offers up a lot of possibilities and doesn't really do anything with it, or rather it does attempts a bunch of half ideas. It kind of pursues all these different strands, but none with enough conviction. And it's two hours and 15 minutes long, and the length is very detrimental to the film's quality because even though it hops ideas frequently... This is relative to the length, so they kind of uh, feel as though the movie is made in sort of half-hour chunks, and he just like pursued one idea and then got bored, and it kind of zigzags to something else. So without going too much into spoiler territory, a part of the plot is how the miniaturized world quickly uh, develops to become like no different to the other world when it's sold as this kind of great utopia where because you're smaller, your money lasts a lot longer, but very quickly there's an underclass. And there's the haves and the have-nots in society. But I think it became a bit of uh, poverty tourism. Uh, and the film is kind of about Matt Damon's character becoming the change he wants to see in the world. And I wasn't entirely sure what the film was trying to do. And at the end, I was like, what was the whole thing about them being tiny? You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> I know it's like, you know, the more things change, the more things stay the same. So it's like obviously a deliberate thing. But the kind of high concepts of the premise and the eventual message of the film were like never successfully married for me. And I think part of the problem is it spends a long time setting up the downsizing worlds. I mean, one of the red flags I had in the movie is like the opening scene is like a sort of TED talk of the Norwegian scientist explaining how the downsizing works. And then there's another scene where Jason Sudeikis explains to Matt Damon how the downsizing works. And then... They go through the downsizing process and there's like another like TED talk scene with Laura Dern and Neil Patrick Harris. And I'm like, this has got to pay off at some point. It's a bit like he just wrote four versions of the same scene and it takes a long time for him to get shrunk. And I feel like that's the inciting incident. Yeah. And uh, But it was a bit like, like I was saying, like it was one movie and then it's like, actually it's going to be about uh, this Vietnamese dissident and uh, poverty and white class white middle class malaise i think i don't know i really don't know did honey i shrunk the kids start with a ted talk no that's no. why it's one of the greatest films ever made yeah it's full of exposition that drags it down and alexander payne's previous films have all been um comedic but the comedy has always been rooted in reality and i don't think he is a good fit for this kind of light high concept mode of humor and a lot of the jokes fall fell very flat for me 
it gets very problematic with this Vietnamese character. Uh, and this is not to downgrade uh, Hong Chao's performance, and she's by far and away the best thing in the movie, and her, uh, she brings a lot of subtlety and complexity to the part, which just isn't there. But there's a decision to have her speak in broken English uh, with a very strong Vietnamese accent, and uh, it's very accurate because Hong Chao's parents were Vietnamese. And I just felt this was being played for laughs, and a lot of humour was about her saying things very bluntly or not quite correctly, and I've read a few positive reviews saying that this is written, you know, this is a deliberate thing to make people confront their own prejudices and how, you know, people just assume if you can't speak English fluently, you're stupid when she's like the wisest character in the movie. But it was a bit like she is both the sort of romantic interest, the sort of manic pixie Vietnamese dissident girl, like this weird, yeah, not quite. And it's like, I just like, no, nah, I'm just not buying it. <laughs> and I think... I was like, because I really didn't like Nebraska and I thought I had quite a snobbish attitude towards like working class Americans. I just like, I just don't know what Alexander Payne's, it was a bit like um, Free Billboards, whereas like, yeah, the humor is just shitting on people who are it's punching down. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's just odd. Because I think, yeah, my basic conclusion, this is more review of Alexander Payne, but I think he's a bit of a sort of Midwestern snob. And sometimes he's very good at like critiquing that kind of class of people as is the case with sideways and sometimes he just doesn't bother yeah yeah and i would say this is this is the case here there are some things that are enjoyable about it christoph waltz and udo kier are this sort of european party boy double act and they are just having a lot of fun i'm not sure if they are really invested in what the film's attempting to say but they're just super entertaining and uh, matt damon is very good at playing a clueless everyman but given his recent remarks, maybe that's just not acting. Maybe he's just like... He is we all, Yeah, maybe we just thought he was, you know, we've given him too much credit for his intelligence in the past. And there's also something to be said that the weird zigzag structure did make it entertaining while I was watching it because I was like, where's this movie going? But at the end, it's like, after such a long journey, there wasn't really a destination that made it all worthwhile. So I would be kind of intrigued by what people make of it, but one to miss, I think. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're gonna hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. A joint review shared between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other? The light is on, the guys are in, so let the chat begin. Stop talking now. Well, I've washed the bad taste out of downsizing in my mouth. Is there a masterpiece we could review? Ah, yes. Of course there's a masterpiece, Danny. How could this film be otherwise? It's directed by the greatest filmmaker of all time, Steven Spielberg. The greatest director of all time. It stars the greatest male actor of all time, Tom Hanks. Timothy Hanks. Timothy Hanks himself. And it also stars certainly the best actor of any gender in history, including the future, uh, (laughs) Meryl Streep. (laughs) Um, so this is The Post. This is a uh, political thriller directed by Spielberg and written by Liz uh, Hanna with a polished by the a spotlight screenwriter, Josh Singer. This is about journalism. Get me that other journalism film, Oscar yeah, yeah. Man. Uh, Josh Singer to do polish on it. Uh, it is about the uh, Washington Post's um, efforts to publish the Pentagon Papers, which, which was this leaked study of the Vietnam War uh, commissioned by um, Bob McNamara, the um, American Defense Secretary, which was, uh, you know, uh, kept under wraps because it gave a much more sort of negative impression of how the war was going than the, than the one that they were giving publicly. And then it was subsequently leaked to the uh, New York Times and then the uh, Washington Post. And the government, the Nixon administration, attempts to shut them down for publishing it. But the news will not be stopped. You can't must, stop the news. You must publish the news. Here is a clip of them talking about the news. So, can I ask you a hypothetical question? Oh, dear, I don't like hypothetical questions. Well, I don't think you're going to like the real one, either. 
Do you have the papers? Not yet. Oh gosh, oh gosh, because you know the, the uh, position that would put me in. You know, we have language in the prospectus. That yeah, I know, I know that the bankers can change their mind. That's, and I know what is at stake. You know, the only couple I knew that both Kennedy and LBJ wanted to socialize with was you and your husband, and you owned the damn paper. Well, since the way things worked, politicians and the press, they trusted each other so they could go to the same dinner party and drink cocktails and tell jokes while there was a war ben, raging in Vietnam. I don't know what we're talking about. I, I'm not protecting Lyndon. No, you got his former Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, the man who commissioned this study. He's I'm one of about a dozen party him. guests I'm not out on your any of them. I'm protecting the paper. What are you going to do, Miss Grant? I'm a news guy. I'm a newsman. Uh, so you saw this film with a lot of anticipation, um, mainly based around... I mean, the thing that really got me excited for it was reading this review by David Ehrlich on IndieWire, and I really recommend to anyone that they read this. I think it's, like, one of the great, like, entertaining pieces of critical writing in, re in recent times. He, he, he thought it was basically the best film of all time. It was, like, the Hamilton of movies for him, whatever that means. His line was, defending the Constitution hasn't been this much fun since Hamilton. And uh, he describes it as a rallying cry for the resistance. And he's very, um, I mean, he basically, all, all of his review is talking about its link to the current political situation. And Spielberg himself has been quite explicit about this, right? That they, they felt like it was a very timely film. Uh, it was, they had to make it. It was necessary. Like, you had to make it. You couldn't wait around. And it had a very, very quick turnaround because uh, Spielberg has been making uh, Ready Player One, this kind of sci-fi action film. Um, and you know, while the as 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 you said uh, after you saw it, it was like he just basically seems to have made this film while they were rendering the graphics for like, <laughs> you know the '80s characters from that movie. Um, so it was all I think like he started production on this in like March of last year or something like that. And then something they, like a nine month turnaround. Had a nine month like... turnaround, like to to for, from when they got the script to when like John Williams was polishing off the score. Um, and so it's really impossible to assess this film without addressing its like political messaging which is laid on with unbelievable heavy handedness <laughs> uh, so even if i hadn't been primed for it by you know reading about the movie beforehand it absolutely beats you over the head with what it's trying to say so you it cannot be assessed as like a purely you know period drama about a past event like it's very much aimed at, aimed at right now um, as much so as a film like I, Daniel Blake, which I really liked. <laughs> and I think that there's a, a you know, good um, like illuminating comparison maybe to be made between the two of them because they're both being made by people who have like a political purpose in mind. And I, Daniel Blake is this is kind of a piece of political propaganda which wants you to understand something very specific about the current injustices of the British welfare system. And the whole movie is functioned around that. Um, whereas Spielberg wants you to understand something about like the importance of the free press, which is also a good you know message in a way. Sure. But rather than making a film like a contemporary set film, which is very clear about why this message is so important now, or like what would change if this was embraced, or like why we need this, it's like reflected through this like historical event. So it's like taken one step away from it, and it seems to and well both the film and a lot of reviewers pretty much take it as read that the central problem today, the thing that people are freaking out about, that's like, you know, the reason we're stuck with Trump and everything like that, it's because, like, the, they're not telling the news. The, the newsmen aren't... They don't have enough, like, ability to tell the news or something like that. And I'm not at all convinced that's that... That's bullshit. Really, I'm not convinced that that is actually, like, the issue. You know? Trump didn't become president, you know, because there were some scandals not reported on. It was, like, despite, like... He had every fucking scandal. Yeah, he had like a hundred. Like scandals. completely misdiagnosing the problem. I mean, so I, I, I feel like impossible not to constantly refer to this Ehrlich review because I, I just love it. Sure, but it was like in the in the review he talks about how so in the post they they play clips from the uh, Nixon the recordings of Nixon uh, that came out after Watergate. I don't like the press. I don't like I don't like the post. I don't like it. <laughs> uh, I hate that Ben Bradley Tom Hanks guy. is awful. Um, so they so they literally play them, and they have some like poor actor in silhouette, kind of mouthing uh, the the lips of Nixon or whatever, which feels like obviously it's kind of like unsubtle and dumb. But Ehrlich says that 
you know that's the point and that it was he's like oh it might as well be that they just play the access hollywood tapes but it's like but we the point is that we know the tapes there was no you know brave newsman releasing those tapes or whatever they came up before trump was elected yeah yeah so how they didn't help like we all knew like there was this whole scandal about how you like how it's the press it's the russians it's anything except the women. underlying huge Problems inequalities in yeah so i think like there's just something fundamentally off with this film's view and i and i guess like a bit like the final year that obama documentary i guess your take on it will depend partly on like your political leanings although this film has not had a universally good uh reception i think a lot of people who would be receptive to its message have also like uh, been a bit turned off by the fact that it is not really that successful like as a straightforward drama either yeah i mean it's kind of stupid to try and separate the politics because it's ingrained in every single second of this film <laughs> yeah. but just in terms of piece of drama like it's repetitive yeah you have the same scenes happen over and over again uh there's not really a sense of pace the kind of dramatic stakes like it's it's kind of fundamentally dramatically inert because it's about journalists fulfilling the bare definition of their profession like yeah the whole thing is like should we publish these stories which the public obviously should know about it or not it's like well if you didn't you wouldn't be journalists yeah so it's not really a moral quandary and i don't know but that's treated as like the most heroic thing in the world for them to do their job well one of the chief obstacles to it is the fact that they are so personally connected to those in power that it's like professionally awkward for them to publish it and it's like well that's fucked up yeah, and the film does a massive cop-out on and that. And the film utterly, utterly cops out on that huge problem. I mean, it, it kind of... So um, Meryl Streep's character, Catherine Graham, who's the publisher of The Post, uh, became the publisher after the um, death of her father, I believe. No, sorry, death of her, death her, her husband. Her husband. Sorry, her husband who killed himself. Uh, and and so she became the publisher rather you know unexpectedly. And, and before that, she was mainly a socialite, like who was close friends with McNamara and various other big um, political figures and stuff. Um, and uh, so part of it is about how it's awkward for her to publish these stories when she's friends with McNamara and he's like doesn't come he comes off really badly with them. And she has this argument with Tom Hanks where he you know mentions this to her and she's like, "But you used to go boating with the Kennedys and stuff like that." And I remember like, "Well, you're both dirty." You but know? no, but then Tom Hanks says, those days have to be over. Those it's days like, have to be over. Oh, well, oh, okay. okay. Okay, fine. Oh, you know, great. As long as you say that it, you're not doing that anymore. And yeah, I mean, it's this, uh, it seems to, the sort of message of the film in a way is kind of like, things are okay as long, as long as you can rely on the hopelessly entangled web of uh, elite uh, journalists and politicians, as long as like, the journalists are just, you know, have a bit of integrity, then it's, like, fine. Yeah. So it's like, you shouldn't be fucking... You should never in your life have been voting with the president, you know? It's, like, it's bad that that happens. And and you're all, like, from this incredibly privileged, super elite world. Uh, that is bad? Like, I don't... It's not... <laughs> Yeah, that is that's 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 the, that's the dramatic meat of the story. Yeah, but it's not treated with any kind of critical gaze. It's like, what's important is that we get a report on the news. Like the fact that it's not it's nothing about like the sort of horrific cover up or the papers. Like just it's just the fact we got to publish the got pen- the scoop out. Got the scoop is like morally good. It's like, but what happened? Was anyone held to account? It's like no, no, no one went to jail. No one went to jail. Like- it's a bit like you know. Uh, and that was the last. The Washington Post didn't didn't US bring down Nixon. It was he. Had, it was Congress. You know this yeah. kind of fiction that you know one devastating own you can take down a president. It's just bullshit. Also, like I don't know, it's kind of mulling the movie over. If there's like any president who is you know one president who's like very uh, litigious about leaking documents, it's Obama. Like the Obama administration was the most like You're visceral right, yeah. about. Well, they put, uh, they put um, Chelsea, Chelsea Manning, Manning and tortured like, her combined for like, you know, seven years or whatever. I say, like, there's more comparisons to be made with that administration than the current one. Yeah. But, like, <laughs> I liked Obama, you know, or whatever. That's, like, the, that's the take. He was such a cool guy. He was good at jokes. Yeah. And it's this kind of thing. It was like, Nixon was a bad president. JFK was an okay president. It's all just so chummy, you know? I don't know. It's very chummy. And I think it, it really, the attitude, part of what's so distasteful about the attitude is, like, it basically gets what is morally offensive about Vietnam, like completely backwards. So there's like there's one scene in it where um, Catherine Graham goes to uh, speak to Bob McNamara, and they have this awkward conversation, you know. And she's like, "Well, Bob, I know we've been friends for a long time, but I've got, I've, I've got no choice." Give us a Oscar right now. Yeah, um, and uh, she mentions how um, 
this the the revelations that this study existed and was never acted upon uh is like personally you know horrifying for her because like her son had to go to vietnam and that was like after this study was commissioned and read you know uh and that if they knew that the war was a failure and wasn't working why didn't they pull out then and you know her, her son might have died like for no reason just because like to protect the reputation of the johnson administration or something like that and it's like that is such an awful thing that it is insane to me that she would even like you know go around and be like i love you but i might have to do this it's like you should be wanting to put this man in prison yeah absolutely like that's what's bad like it's not that like the offensive thing isn't that uh they are the, the administration is cracks down on the press too much or that they lied to the public you know that they they secretly knew the war was wasn't going well but then they went out and said it was going really well it's like it's not a dishonest politician that's the problem it's like a country that is mired in this appalling war killing thousands of its own people thousands of vietnamese for no reason whatsoever like that's fucking that's the thing that's bad yeah it's like it's not like the vietnam war would have been fine if the uh, politicians had been standing in front of the american people going like well you know it's kind of fucks like we're having a terrible time over there but we're just going to press on anyway and then like all the news people would have been like well at least they're being honest you know i'll yeah, send yeah, yeah, off yeah. my sons to go and die over there it's like it's it's a the, the war is the moral horror yeah and absolutely. so but like the but the movie seems to think that the way round it should go is that you've got the sort of constitution of like you know free press they report the news they just the news gets out there you do all the news and then after that you know as long as there's enough transparent information and good things happen but that's clearly that's totally backwards like the the first thing is like don't go to the fucking war and get out of there <laughs> as quickly as possible yeah no absolutely like, that's the battle you know but i think that's like that point is like true of so much of the movie where it's like the focus is just off like the true heroism is the guy who leaked the papers and the journalist in the new york times who broke the story but it's like the real hero is the editor and the person who owns the paper who just said we should do this. Yeah. It's like they haven't done anything. They're just like the top of the pyramid. But it's weird in a way that like the whole movie is like is is dramatizing one decision. Like all they do is decide to publish the story. That is all they do. Like they don't there's there's one bit of reporting that um the uh, Bagdikian uh, character played by Bob Odenkirk he does one bit of reporting and because it, it turns out the guy's like his old friend or something um and then like what a journalist what a journalist <laughs> he just remembers that he knows the guy uh and then uh, uh and other than that that it's an entire film that revolves around them making a single decision so like there's i think there's a limit to how much you can really you know dramatize this um and yeah yeah i mean maybe that's you know indicative of the film's failings is that you never well i was never invested in the decision because it's like even though it says, you know, oh, she's got all these, you know, bankers breathing down her neck or whatever, it's like, you obviously should do this. Yeah. There's never, like, uh, it's never a quandary. It's not a moral quandary for the audience, so it's not, it's hard to invest in it as a thing. And even, you know, no amount of fucking Zooms and John Williams bugles can imbue these moments with the meaning yeah. Spielberg thinks they have. It's very hacky, you know. I think you can really tell that it was turned around very rapidly. Well, it's it kind of like yeah. sort of Spielberg's automatic <laughs> bag of tricks of like tracking in and out all the time. Well, yeah, it's know. kind of meta in a way because the film is about them like you know trying to meet this deadline. It's a bit like the movie is like that. It's like yeah. just get it out there, get it out, do it, do it. It's too important, you know. We must tell people. Yeah, like and yeah. Last week I was joking that it might be a combination of like the final year and the darkest hour, but it sort of was because yeah. Yeah. it was like the footage is at odds with the message of the film and also it's got a similar obviously it's much more uh professionally done with spielberg because he's just like you know more assured but there's just a lot of him zooming in and out staff tracking shots just to try to pizzazz up what is a very stodgy script and a very yeah i mean they just sit around in rooms that's yeah. really all that's happening it's like people sitting around in rooms chatting um i thought like i found tom hanks and meryl street both pretty annoying in it i think hanks is probably worse but he's like doing it, it is literally like uh, uh, he was hosting Saturday Night Live and they did a newsman sketch. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'm he, a newsman. I'm a newsman. He's got his like sleeves rolled up. He's permanently squinting and he's yelling at people and he says things like, what the hell do you think we do here, kid? You know, and uh, it's just like an absolutely cartoonish performance with only one note. There's one note that he strikes over and over again. Uh, and Meryl Streep is putting in a little bit more effort, I think, but is also just feels like, you know, the uh, off-the-rack collection of streepisms, uh, you know, 
sort of a lot of trembling and well uh, yeah and also another element of the script is this like trying to be a female empowerment film but she is like a feminist icon by being this rich socialite who's inherited a newspaper and just does from a family and like just does the obviously morally right thing to do and it's just you know it's the whole movie is they just kind of kind of crowbar into a narrative which it doesn't suit because it's you know it's not that it's not that story yeah the 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 feminism in it is also like very bluntly handled with like no elegance whatsoever um and it becomes i mean the movie i would say certainly goes downhill i mean it starts off just like you know inoffensively ordinary it's just like fine uh, but then by the end, it's like just you. I I couldn't really focus on the screen because my eyes are just rolling around. In my head. <laughs> and but it's the like there's scenes at the towards the end of the movie where she has become by virtue of taking this decision. You know, she's like a kind of uh, breaking the glass ceiling like feminist hero and stuff. And there's like scenes of her like meeting a young woman who's like I really look up to you, Mrs. Graham. And then like she walks through a crowd of women who are all staring at her like Wow, she's my hero. I wonder. I wish I could grow up to be. A uh, rich socialite. Yeah, as long as I'm born into a millionaire family and I'm friends with a bunch of presidents, maybe I can do this. Um, and, I mean, you know, obviously, like, m- movies about uh, women facing down sexism, as I'm sure Kay Graham actually had to do, like, that's admirable and everything like that, but it's just, like, so- it's done with no grace whatsoever. And uh, as a result, it doesn't feel, like, that committed to it. It just feels sort of layered on the top in this, like you know very sort of lame way well yeah there are moments in the movie which felt like they were just written on the day to react to the headlines that were being published there's like a scene where tom hanks's wife played by sarah paulson who's a brilliant actress a classic tom hanks uh, wife role yeah she has to sort of woman explain just a daily grind of misogyny to him yeah she she unreveals to him the existence of sexism and he's like you Making a good point there, but never. <laughs> um, and I don't know. It just feels so. It feels like a sort of epic Twitter thread that's been like put into the script. Um, yeah, I'd be fascinated to know what this movie like, how it lands like five years from now, because it's so like you know, as you're saying, like this is a film of now. It's reacting to stuff, and it's like you know, maybe they just have to have that as like cliff notes to someone who watches in the deck is like what was going on here? Is like let me tell you the headlines of 2017, and you know, yeah, yeah, the, the yeah. production of this film will make sense. I think, like, how you react to, like, the very final coda of the movie, I think, will probably uh, form your view on it because it becomes less, like, sort of strips away everything else except it's unbelievably uh, straightforward, like, messaging. And then then the end of the film is, like, like, it's pretty laughable. Um, I was laughing. Well, I was laughing as well. It's (laughs) it's literally laughable. So... um, so I'd say that if you if you like watch all the way to the end of the movie and see like the final two scenes and you're still you still got your hand on your heart and you're you know saluting the flag or whatever, uh, then yeah, this movie is for you. Uh, then you are an idiot. Are an idiot. <laughs> yeah. The final thing that I would say that really irritates me about this, which is like another thing, this is this very very American liberal attitude that's like super offensive and irritating, is the way that they can't see any like values and ideals except through the prism of the fucking Constitution, and they were so ingrained in them that everything has to be couched in like God bless America and you know, uh, all, we all lose, America stuff. loses. Yeah, that like that they think the the battle is between like these different visions of america and like their values are the real american values and like what they're fighting for is what the founding fathers were really fighting for and it's like defending the constitution and blah 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 and it's like free speech is not good because it's like you know a tenet of the constitution it, it's just a good thing in and of itself yeah absolutely and and the the blows that are really supposed to land are things when like characters say things like this has never been done before in the history of the republic and you just end up reinforcing this like idiotic patriotism around uh, America being the greatest country on earth or whatever, which you know is completely stupid and uh, undercuts your attempts to like seem you know incredibly moralizing. Yeah, it's just like yeah, it's depressing because you know Trump's success is like part of this like general entrenchment like politically and culturally. And like the less responses to like just maybe entrench a bit further. I don't know. Like, well, they, make America it's great so, again. It's is so like, like head in the sand, you know. Yeah, it's like for God's sake, man. It's, it's like, like they also want to make America great again. Yeah, but this is my vision of the great America. The right way, it should be great again. Yeah, and it's so like I saw was one like thing on Rotten Tomatoes where the line that they'd chosen from a review was like it manages to be both nostalgic and timely. And it's like that is the entire problem. You know? <laughs> 
It's like that is the problem. You've seen Get Out. Soaked, it's like soaked in nostalgia. Nostalgia is inherently right wing. It, yeah, it's, it's, it's like it's soaked in this bullshit nostalgia for a period that didn't ever exist the way you imagined it did, and and will not solve any of the problems of now. And you guys need to wake the fuck up, you know? Yeah, Stop you seen Get us, Out? Stop selling us this garbage. Yeah, just go back and watch Get Out again. Yeah, Get Out, you know, now. looks the world in the face and doesn't blink, okay? <laughs> yeah. That's why it's fucking brilliant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this is like absolute head in the sand, like, you know, comforting bullshit that won't solve any problems. And it's also not just not that good on its own. Also, it's just not very good. <laughs> So five stars yes. out of the 50 stars on the American flag, <laughs> which I will be burning in protest of this film. Ooh, time for a break from all the film chat. Have a cup of tea, maybe make a quick snack and telephone friends so you know where she's at. Right, that's enough now. Back to film chat. So thanks for sticking with us through that epic rant. Hashtag epic rant. Uh, hashtag the resistance. Yeah. Uh, the resistance against the resistance. That's the hashtag <laughs> I'm trying to start. I hate the resistance. Yeah. Yeah, we are the resistance yeah. to the resistance. I'm not with her. <laughs> yeah. I don't hate her, but I'm not with her. That's another <laughs> hashtag. Um, join us next week. We'll be reviewing possibly Early Man, the new Ardman animation. They're always good. How, I mean, I'm Coco. So, to be honest with you, like, as fun as it is to spew bile and stuff, I feel like I've just seen a string of these movies yeah, yeah. that I strongly disliked and irritating throughout. And I'm definitely ready to not, like, watch a film with the feeling of, like, you know, satisfying how much I hated it. Absolutely. <laughs> or whatever. So I'm, I'm so ready for some sort of adorable animated film about, you know, people hitting each other with rocks in a funny way and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And Coco's out as well. Pixar and Aldman are pretty consistent, aren't they? They're pretty uh, solid. production companies... The exception of cars. I mean, what are you going to do? Yeah. What are you going to do about cars, you know? It makes a lot of money. And if, so, I really, if I really want to see a film I'm going to hate, I'll go see 12 Strong. <laughs> in which, like, the uh, American soldiers are the underdogs fighting in Afghanistan for some ridiculous reason. I did see the poster. It's like, on September 11th, the world changed. On September the 12th, we, we fought back. We something. fought back. Yeah. And it's like, is this a famous story? The, the poster sort of implied that it was, and I had no idea I what it was about. there was some book called Horse Soldiers, which is probably more, you know, of a big deal in the American Horse Soldiers. It's like a they sort were of riding horse. horses. I don't, I don't really know why. They, they literally came in riding on a... <laughs> came in a town riding on a horse. They're, yeah, they're like modern GI cowboys. Wow. Fighting the uh, evil savages of the yeah. Taliban. Okay, let's not see that. But let's see these other delightful, delightful animated films for children. Can't wait for those. Have a great week, everybody. Oh, and by the way, thanks to everybody who came to our film quiz. We had a lot of fun. It was awesome. It was, it was, you were awesome. You were a great, great bunch. Um, there are a couple of guys there who we didn't know, which is in- unusual. Um, thanks for coming. And if your listeners reach out to us, uh, we we beg for attention all the time. Please. Please. I want to know who you were, what were you doing there, how did you find out about it, what's going on there. Very suspicious about your presence. <laughs> It's usually just our close friends, so it's a bit odd, but thanks for coming anyway. And yeah, have a great have a great week. Absolutely. See you next time. Bye bye. Bye. Let's do it. Can you see Hollywood really marshalling their forces to replace him uh, come the next election? I mean, can you really see Oprah Winfrey running? What? Well, yeah, I can see, I can certainly see Oprah Winfrey running, but of course it's totally up to her. You know, she was effective in helping to elect Barack Obama. She's been on television for 30, over 35 years, speaking about women's issues, issues about children and, and workplace, you know, in, you know, inequalities. And, and she's built bridges between different ideologies and she's a peacemaker. And I always, I've always referred to her as an ambassador of empathy. And our country needs some, a good dose of empathy right now. You were generous in your donation to Hillary Clinton's campaign. Would you donate to her? If she declares her candidacy, oh, I, without question, I would donate to her campaign if she declares her candidacy. But she hasn't done that yet. I'm not sure that she intended the speech, the great speech she gave, she gave uh, on, on, on receipt of the Cecil B. DeMille Award at the Golden Globes last week. I, I, I don't really believe that was uh, throwing, you know, a hat in the ring. Or hat in the ring. I don't believe that that was it. But if she decides to, it was run, a hint, though, wasn't it?
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.